Well, please turn your Bibles with me to the book of Jonah. It's in the Old Testament. As you turn there in the, the Old Testament, it's in the minor prophets section. There's the book of Hosea, Joel, uh, then Amos, Obadiah, then Jonah. You get to Micah and beyond, you've, you've gone too far. As you turn there, let me just in, encourage you to, to uh, look through your bulletin. There's a lot of neat opportunities in the life of our church uh, up coming weeks and this week. Uh, Saturday, I just want to highlight one thing. This Saturday, there's going to be a, a class at the Bethany Baptist Church campus entitled Adjusting to a New Normal, Seeking Wisdom After an Adoption or Foster Placement. And uh, for those of you who don't, who don't know, our, our church has a, a ministry focused on the needs of orphans, and many in our church and our the churches in our association have adopted or involved in foster care ministry. And, and what we've found oftentimes is that a, a family begins this ministry, and as they begin this ministry, sometimes it can be a little overwhelming. And so if, if you're even thinking about getting involved in foster care ministry or adopting, or you've done so and you're in need of some encouragement, I, I, I would encourage you to come to this on Saturday, for those of you who haven't engaged in this ministry yet, to, to kind of be around people who have and see some of the things that they're going through and encourage them. And if you have, to receive encouragement from other believers. Uh, this isn't a ministry that I encourage people to go through on their own. There's a need for the community of faith to come alongside of us and encourage us. And so that would be my uh, inv- invitation to you for this, this weekend on Saturday. You can find out more information on our website or there in your bulletin. Well, hopefully you've navigated that difficult section in our Bibles called the Minor Prophets, and you've found Jonah by now. And uh, we're going to read Jonah chapter 4 together. If you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together this morning. Uh, Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We read, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are 120,000 persons 
who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. May God instruct us through the reading of his word this morning. You may be seated, and let's pray that God would allow us to continue to worship him this morning as we study his word. And Father, that is our prayer this morning. Our prayer would be that you would open our hearts to receive your word. Father, as we think this morning about missions and about our task to proclaim the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ, the world, help us to think through the condition of our hearts when we don't love the nations as you call us to do so. And open your word. Teach us through the life of your prophet Jonah this morning. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Friday morning, I woke up with a sense of, of discouragement, kind of a, a general feeling of malaise, and I couldn't quite place my finger on what exactly was bothering me as I, I woke up. I, I had the sense that something bad had happened the previous night, but, you know, it's just that moment when you wake up, and I couldn't remember exactly what it was. And, and then it came rushing back to me, and I remembered that the night before, the Texas Rangers had been within one strike of winning the World Series twice, and had failed to do so. And I lay there in bed, and I remember, oh, right. I thought, why does this bother me so much? And then this morning, as many of you reminded me about the victory of the Cardinals on Friday, so, so nicely reminded me, I remember that's why I'm dreading this so deeply. And, and I'm trying this morning to rejoice with those who rejoice, but I think some of you have failed to learn how to mourn with those who mourn. <laughs> but seriously, Friday, I, I, as I kind of went through my day, every now and then it would just kind of bother me, this, this baseball game. And I'm not even that big of a baseball fan, but, but just to, to see that the Texas Rangers, my, my childhood team, that I'd gone to so many of their games, to see them get so close to winning the World Series for the first time in franchise history. I mean, some teams have won it like 11 times, but the, the Texas Rangers never, never have had the joy of winning a world championship. And, and so there's just this kind of discouraging feeling. I'm like, why in the world am I emotionally affected by a baseball game. Tuesday night, Whitney's birthday, we went to go see the musical Wicked, and just a, a great time, but it was kind of interesting as I was sitting there next to Whitney, we were in this, this theater full of people who'd seen the musical several times, I'm sure, and, and knew the characters, and what was interesting to me was to listen to the emotional response that people were exhibiting as they saw the characters play out their 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 actions on stage, and there'd be like moments of spontaneous laughter, spontaneous applause, and you could tell there was this emotional connection to the events that were taking place on the stage. People were moved emotionally with either joy or sorrow based upon what was taking place on the stage. Uh, last summer, we went to go see uh, the musical Les Mis, and as I love the music from that, and, and I fe felt affected emotionally as I saw the the, and I heard the songs, and I, it was kind of one of those theaters in the round, and across the, across the audience, I could see a man in the front row on the other side, and this man was uh, wearing a Les Mis shirt, and at times, during the musical, he would begin to cry. At other times, he would just have this great expression of joy on his face, and he, at one point, like, he was raising his arms almost in worship. I thought, this guy is affected very deeply emotionally by this music. And there are all sorts of things. It's very interesting. I've thought about this a lot this past week. There are so many things that affect us deeply emotionally. 
We respond with either joy or sorrow based upon the external circumstances in our lives. This past week, the stock market went up, and, and some of us fe- felt affected emotionally by, this, the, by the good financial news. So many things affect us deeply emotionally. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong. God has made us as emotional creatures. But I want to read to you a passage from Romans chapter 9. And in Romans chapter 9, before we get to the book of Jonah, in Romans chapter 9, we see what affects Paul emotionally. Paul, in Romans chapter 9, remember he's just talked about the gospel. He's, he's talked in chapters 1, 2, and part of chapter 3 about the severity of God and God's judgment upon the nations and upon all people. And then he's talked about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how through placing one's faith in Jesus Christ apart from any works on our own, we can be reconciled to God. And he's talked about the beauty of this gospel message. In Romans chapter 8, he's talked about the permanency of our relationship with Jesus Christ, the security we have in our relationship with God through our adoptions as sons and daughters. This, this beautiful gospel message And then he comes to Romans chapter 9, and what does Paul say? He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that what? I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And why does he have that sorrow? What affects Paul at the core of his being? What affects him emotionally in such a way that there's a sorrow that is always present with him? It's as he considers his kinsmen who have not responded to this gospel message. He says, they're my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They're the Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God, blessed forever. Amen. And Paul says, as I contemplate the reality that these people who've received so much revelation, whose God's God's promises have come to them. As I think about them and the reality that they've not responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is sorrow in my heart. There is unceasing anguish as I consider the reality that they have not responded to the gospel. What I want us to think about this morning is what does it say about me when those things that should affect me emotionally, those things that should cause me sorrow or joy, what does it say about me when those things do not affect me? I have been given, we have been given, the task of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to the nations. Our task by God is to take the good news that Jesus Christ can reconcile us to God through our faith in him on the basis of his death on the cross and resurrection. Our task is to take that incredible message and proclaim it to people from all nations so that we can see people from different cultures and and different lands and different tongues respond in worship to God. That's the joyous task that we've been given. And as we think about our success or failure in that task, we should respond with joy or sorrow. As we see people from other nations responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, there should be a sense of joy. As we see them fail to respond, there should be a sense of sorrow. This past week, 
I got excited about the Rangers winning a baseball game, but did I feel excitement about our missions conference? I feel sorrow as I thought about a Rangers loss. Did I feel sorrow as I contemplated the state of people who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Here's the question I want you to ask yourself this morning. What does it say about me when I don't love the nations? What about when I don't love the nations? We know we talk a lot about loving the nations, but what does it reveal about me when I don't love the nations? That's the question I want us to consider together this morning as we go through Jonah chapter 4. But before we go through Jonah chapter 4, I want to walk through the book of Jonah with you. As we go through the book of Jonah, we're going to see that it can be divided into two sections. First of all, we're going to see in chapters 1 and 2, we're going to see God's grace toward Jonah. And then we see in chapters 3 and 4, God's grace toward Nineveh. So chapters 1 and 2 tell us about God's grace toward Jonah. Chapters 3 and 4 tell us about God's grace toward Nineveh. Jonah was a prophet of the Lord who lived sometime between 750 and 800 B.C. We first encounter Jonah in the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 14, during the reign of Jeroboam II. In 2 Kings chapter 14, it says, verse 25, that Jeroboam, the second Jeroboam, restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hepher. And so Jonah, during the reign of Jeroboam II, which was a time of prominence for the northern kingdom, the Israel kingdom, the ten tribes, it was a, a time of resurgence for that kingdom, that nation. And Jonah prophesies during that time period and talks about the expanding of the borders or the restoration of the borders of Israel. That's Jonah. I believe that the book of Jonah was most likely written by Jonah after he repented and recognized the folly of his ways. Jonah, in the book of Jonah, is not a very pleasant character. In fact, let's, let's look a little bit about Jonah's life from the book of Jonah. As you turn back to Jonah chapter 1, we first see God's grace toward Jonah here in these first two chapters. And verse 1 tells us, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And so we start off in the book of Jonah with a need. There's these people who live in the city of Nineveh, a great city in the Assyrian Empire. And these people in Nineveh have a need for God's grace. They are a people who do not worship Yahweh God. The involvement that they have in worshiping their many gods is, is an offense to God. They are a brutal people. You do not want, if you're going to get into a war with someone, you certainly don't want to get into a war with Assyria. As one person put it, they don't fight gentlemen's wars. They are brutal in their defeat of their enemies. They are a people who are in need of God's grace. They need to understand about the nature of their wickedness and repent of it and receive God's grace. In that sense, they're very much like many people in our world today. There are many people in our world today, many nations, who are in need of God's grace. There are people in Muslim countries who hate us 
see pictures of them on TV, chanting things like death to America and burning American flags and, and rejoicing when terrorists are successful at killing people in our country. Those are people who are in need of God's grace. There are people in Europe who have long since turned their back on God who are in need of God's grace. Our country as it is immersed in, in wickedness and materialism and immorality, uh, we are a people in need of God's grace. Jonah is called to go to the people of Nineveh who are a people in need of God's grace. He's called to go. The word of the Lord comes to him and tells him to go and say to these people what he tells them to say, what he tells Jonah to say. And how does Jonah respond? Verse 3 tells us tells us that Jonah, as he hears God's word, flees to Tarshish. Now, think about Jonah here in the northern kingdom of Israel. He is called to go to Nineveh, which would have been to the east of where he was, and instead he gets on a boat, goes down to a seaport, and heads for Tarshish, which was the farthest western point you can imagine, probably a city located in southern Spain. He sells literally to the other end of the world for him. Now, why did he do this? Why did Jonah not obey the word of the Lord? A lot of theories have been given as the person comes to chapter 1. Some people say, well, he's afraid of being killed by the Ninevites, or he hated the Ninevites so much. But the text doesn't tell us yet, does it? Although it does add a very interesting detail. Look again at chapter 1 and look at verse 3. This is something that's very interesting to me as we think about Jonah and his actions here in the book of Jonah. It says that he rose to flee to Tarshish, and it doesn't say to get away from the Ninevites. It doesn't say because he hated Nineveh so much. It says he got on a boat to go to Tarshish. Why? Or, and, and what was he doing, trying to accomplish as he, as he did this? To get away from the presence of the Lord. He goes down to Joppa, he finds a ship that's going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare, and he went on board to go with the Tarshish again, to go to Tarshish, why again? To get away from the presence of the Lord. Later in chapter uh, 1, verse 10, it's going to say he did this, he was busy, he was fleeing the presence of the Lord. There's something about being in the presence of the Lord that this man Jonah that we're introduced to in this book of Jonah so detests, is so desirous of getting away from that he's willing to go literally to the other end of the world for him to get away from the presence of the Lord. In Jonah's mind, God's presence is manifested in a special way in his holy city in Jerusalem in the temple. And Jonah, as he recognizes that reality, wants to get as far away from that presence of God as possible. Now, you know what happens in the rest of chapter 1, right? As Jonah gets on this ship to go away from the presence of the Lord, he finds that God's presence is even there on the ship. God sends this great wind, and the sailors are afraid. They call Jonah up. They say, you need to pray to your God. And Jonah, the, the lots are cast. They realize that Jonah's responsible for what's going on. And Jonah says, look, I'm trying to get away from God. I'm trying to free, flee the presence of the Lord. They say, what are you doing? Are you crazy? And they eventually agree to throw Jonah into the sea at Jonah's request. And then in chapter 2, we see God's grace exhibited toward Jonah. In chapter 2, Jonah's there in the belly of this great fish, and he calls out to God in chapter 2. He says, look, I'm in my distress, and, and God is answering me. I'm, I'm in Sheol, and, I, and, and God hears my voice even here. 
And here in chapter 2, as Jonah, as Jonah considers the character of God, he's grateful that God is a God who saves. Verse 7, he says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay And he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And God delivers Jonah. He allows the fish to spit Jonah back up on the shore. And so here in the first part of the book of Jonah, we see God's grace toward Jonah. Jonah is a reluctant prophet. He refuses to go to the people of Nineveh. Again, the text doesn't tell us exactly why he doesn't want to go see the people of Nineveh. But he doesn't. He flees from the presence of the Lord. And God is still gracious toward him. Now, that brings us to the second part of the book of Jonah. Look at chapter 3. Here we see God's grace toward Nineveh in chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 3 begins the same way chapter 1 began. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah, this time, he's just been spit out by a fish, not a lot of options here. He says, okay, clearly not going isn't going to work. And so Jonah goes to Nineveh, this great city, this city that's great in God's eyes, and he goes to the city of Nineveh, and hopefully most of you know this story as well. It's this great city. It's a city that, according to the text, it would take about three days to go through and proclaim this message. And Jonah goes around, and he'll go into an area, and he begins to proclaim that in 40 days, God's judgment is coming. He talks to them about their wickedness and says, look, because of your great wickedness, God's judgment is coming upon this city. And not just God in an abstract sense, Yahweh God's judgment is coming upon you. The the God of Israel and the people of Nineveh, as they gather into these groups and hear Jonah proclaim this message of God's coming judgment and God's coming destruction, the people of Nineveh don't respond with hostility. As they hear the words come from the mouth of this prophet, it says in verse, I believe it's verse 5, it doesn't say they believe Jonah, it says they believe God. They hear what Jonah is saying about their wickedness, and they hear what Jonah is saying about the result of wickedness, and they agree that what Jonah is saying about God is true. Yes, they respond as they hear Jonah in the the streets proclaiming God's coming judgment. They say, we do deserve God's wrath and his punishment. Yes, we are wicked. They agree with God's assessment of them, and they respond in repentance. And it's not just a, a verbal repentance. Hey, guys, quick, put on some sackcloth. Listen to what happens. It says, the people believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word reaches the king of Nineveh. That's probably the ruler of the city. And he gets off his throne, he removes his robe, he covers himself with sackcloth, he sits in ashes, he proclaims that everyone else needs to do the same. And then he says, in addition to that, they need to not just make this outward show, verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And then he doesn't presume upon God. He doesn't say, and if we do this, we do steps A, B, then C will have to happen and God will have to respond to it. He says, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? Perhaps God, perhaps God may turn and relent from the violence that is in his hand, may relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. From the greatest to the least of them in this great city of Nineveh, 
they recognize that what God has said about their moral character is true, and they deserve God's punishment because of it, and they respond with repentance. That brings us to chapter 4, right? And before we get into chapter 4, I want to highlight some parallels between Jonah's life and our own lives. You see, like Jonah, you and I live in a world that needs God's grace. We live in a world full of people who are in need of God's grace, and unlike Jonah, we have a clear understanding of the nature in which God's grace is manifested to us. We've received the good news of Jesus Christ. We know not only that salvation comes from God, but we know the means through which he brings salvation to people. We've seen God's compassion displayed on a far larger scale, in a far more incredible way than what Jonah was even aware of. You and I are aware that we live in a world that needs God's grace. We know how God's grace is delivered to people. And like Jonah, we have been appointed, given the task, to proclaim that good news of Jesus Christ to the nations. And, like Jonah, you and I have failed in our task to proclaim the good news of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, to the nations. I asked you at the beginning of our time this morning to, to consider the, the question, what about when I don't love the nations? What does it mean about me when I, I don't love the nations, when I don't respond with joy or sorrow as I think about the nations and their response to a holy God? What does that reveal about me? That's the question I've asked you to think about. Here's the answer, I believe, and I'm going to try to show you this as we look at chapter 4 in depth. When I don't love the nations, I'm going to suggest this morning from Jonah chapter 4, when I don't love the nations, it reveals that I don't love God. When I don't love the nations, it reveals that I don't love God. Now, let me show you how this is true as we look at Jonah chapter 4 and we see the signs that exist in the heart of a person who doesn't love the nations and how it reveals that in reality they don't love God. The first sign that we see that, I, that shows me that I don't love the nations is here at the beginning of chapter 4, the first sign is that I refuse to imitate God's extraordinary kindness. Look what happens in chapter 4. Remember what's happened? Jonah has just proclaimed this, this coming judgment of God, and as he's proclaimed the coming of judgment of God, he looks around, he, he'll come to an area, he'll begin to proclaim the coming judgment of God, and he sees the faces of the people that he's talking, talking to soften. And he sees, as he's going through the city more and more, he sees people walking around in sackcloth and ashes. Now, remember, I said in chapter 1, we don't, we, didn't, we don't know in chapter 1 why he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. And some have suggested, well, maybe he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was afraid of getting killed, or he's afraid of what they would do or how they would respond. That's not the case, because what happens? As he sees the people respond in repentance, as he sees 100,000 people respond to his message proclaiming God's coming judgment and respond to his message in repentance, he gets really torqued off. Oh, for 
crying out loud. Every time he sees a person walking around in sackcloth, he's like, you've got to be kidding me. And in verse 2, we, re- we see why he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. And I believe chapter 2, uh, I'm sorry, verse 2 contains one of the most tragically haunting prayers in all of Scripture. Listen to what he says to God. He's angry. As he sees these people repenting, he's displeased exceedingly. He's angry, and he prays to the Lord, and this is what he says. Hauntingly tragic. O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He goes through these character attributes of God, and each one is like a a hurling accusation against God. God, I I knew that you were gracious and merciful. I I knew that you're merciful, that you extend compassion to those who don't deserve it. You hold back judgment. I knew that you were slow to anger. That phrase there literally means long in the nose. It's like it takes a person a long time to get really angry. I knew that you were, and this is very interesting too, abounding in steadfast love. You know where that, that word steadfast love, is, what Hebrew word it's from? It's from that same word that we saw in the book of Ruth that we translated extraordinary kindness. That word hesed, it refers to God's faithful covenantal love, this long-standing love that he doesn't withdraw from. I knew that was your character, and I knew that you would relent from disaster. You're a God who is relenting from disaster. And over and over again, he says these phrases that should cause him to worship God, but instead of causing him to worship God, he's hurling them as accusations, as accusations at God. But elsewhere in Scripture, people, as they say these words about God, extol God. For example, Exodus 34, 6, it says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Numbers 14, 18 says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Psalm 86.15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 145.8-9, The Lord is gracious and, and merciful, slow to anger abounding in steadfast love, good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Again and again throughout Scripture, we see these attributes of God that Jonah is is saying to God, used in worship and not in accusation. But Jonah, but Jonah, as he considers the character of God here in Jonah chapter 4, it makes him angry. And you see, Jonah, Jonah doesn't love Nineveh because he doesn't love God. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, not just because he hates Nineveh, but he hates Nineveh because he doesn't love God. You see the difference? Jonah, as he's fleeing, isn't fleeing the Ninevites. That's why in chapter 1, I believe it says that he's fleeing the presence of the Lord. There's something obnoxious to him about the character of God, and he wants to get as far away from it as he can. When you don't 
love the nations, when you don't love others, it's a sign that you don't love God. Jonah, as he thinks about these character qualities of God, there's something about him that just just kind of gets tight as he thinks about what if God's mercy is displayed in the lives of of these other people? What if these Ninevites begin to proclaim the compassion of God? It bothers him deeply. It makes him angry. And what it reveals in his anger is that he doesn't love God. He doesn't desire to see God proclaimed in the lives of these other people, which means he doesn't love God. When I don't love the nations, it reveals I don't love God. Jonah says, look, I'd rather die than live where Nineveh is going to experience these character attributes of you. You notice, you'll notice throughout the book of Jonah, Jonah has like this death wish, you know. What should we do with you, Jonah? Throw me overboard. I'm ready to die. God, I, I don't want to see your attributes. I, I'd rather die. We're going to see it throughout chapter 4 some more. So Jonah here would rather die than imitate God's extraordinary kindness. It shows that he doesn't love the nations. This prayer is so tragic because it shows that he understands the character of God and simultaneously refuses to imitate it. What about us? As we think about missions, as we think about what it looks like to imitate the kindness of God, If I love God, I desire to imitate his extraordinary kindness, his his hesed love, his steadfast love. It's an interesting story about Charles Wesley. You know, uh, the book of Hebrews in in, uh, Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13, verse, kind of in verse 12, talks about the, the sacrifice that Christ made. It says, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to to sanctify the people through his own blood. In other words, Jesus Christ suffered outside the city on on the cross, and he he did so because of of his steadfast love, his extraordinary kindness, his willingness to suffer for people outside the gate. It says, verse 13, Therefore let us go outside the gate, the camp, go to him outside the camp, and, and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. What does that look like to practice the same extraordinary kindness that God has shown toward us, that, that God showed toward Jonah? Charles Wesley, in July 1738, two months after he became a Christian, went to the, a prison with one of his friends, and he spoke with a slave who was a, a black slave who was on death row. And he asked that he and his friend be locked into prison with this person who was to die the next day. He was going to be hung. He and the other prisoners were going to be placed on a cart. The cart would, would be walked off and the men would be left to die, hung, hanged. And this is what Charles Wesley, is, as he writes in his journal after this night with the men on death row, as he went outside the camp to suffer with them, so to speak. He wrote, this is in his journal, he says, they were all cheerful, all the men that they had spent the night with. They were all full of comfort and peace and triumph, assuredly persuaded that Christ had died for them and waited to receive them into paradise. 
The slave saluted me with his looks. As often as his eyes met mine, he smiled with the most composed, delightful countenance I ever saw. We saw them go to meet their Lord, ready for the bridegroom. The cart drew off, but no one struggled for life, but meekly gave up their spirits. I spoke a few suitable words to the crowd and returned full of peace, confident in our friend's happiness. And then he would write this years after this experience. Listen to what he says. He says, that hour under the gallows, that hour under the gallows was the most blessed hour of my life. If I refuse to imitate God's extraordinary kindness toward me, I'm self-centered. I'm not willing to do the difficult things necessary to see other people respond in repentance to the good news of Jesus Christ. You and I have so much more revelation than Jonah has. Jonah understood God's compassion and, and grace, but you and I understand that God's compassion and grace is manifest in the person Jesus Christ. We have the ability to be like Christ and proclaim him to the nations. And when I refuse to imitate God's extraordinary kindness to me, it reveals that I don't love the nations and that I don't love God. I don't have a burning passion to see his character displayed in the lives of other people. Second sign that I don't love the nations that I think we see here in Jonah's life, the second sign is that I find joy and comfort and sorrow in discomfort. The basis of my joy is my comfort. The basis of my sorrow is my discomfort. Verse 4 the Lord very, very kindly says to Jonah, look, are you doing well to be angry? Jonah, think about what you're doing here. Jonah has just seen the people of Nineveh respond in repentance, and he gets angry at God that they're responding that way. He says, God, I knew this would happen, and I despise this, this at, these attributes of your character, and I know how this is going to end. This is why I didn't want to be here in the first place. And God says, look, Jonah, consider your ways here, buddy. Are, are, you, are you doing well here to be angry? And Jonah doubles down. He goes out of the city. He leaves the city of Nineveh. He goes to the east of Nineveh, and he creates this little booth for him to sit in, and he just kind of sits there and he waits. Starts his stopwatch. Forty days. This isn't looking good, but I'm not going to give up yet. And the Lord does something interesting here for Jonah. He says... In verse 6, the Lord God appointed, and notice over and over again, God is, is sovereign throughout this entire story. The Lord appoints winds. He appoints plants here. It says he appointed a plant, and he made it to come up over Jonah. And Jonah's sitting here. He's in his little booth in the hot sun, watching the city, waiting for God's destruction. And God appoints this plant, and this plant grows up overnight, and it shields Jonah from the sun. In other words, and the, the language that he uses here is interesting too. He says it's it's uh, to save him, to deliver him, to rescue him from his discomfort. It's salvific words here. And Jonah, Jonah's a, Jonah's a pathetic character here. Jonah, who's just been really angry with God because of God's mercy, Jonah is exceedingly glad, deliriously happy, joyful about this plant. I've got a plant. I've got a plant. It shields him from the sun. And Jonah becomes super glad. 
Verse 7 tells us, though, God appoints something else to take place. He appoints a worm, and the worm attacks the plant, Then God, and the plant dies, and then God appoints this scorching wind to come. This scorching wind heats up this little uh, booth that Jonah's in. It's like this little oven, and Jonah becomes like, like heat stroke or something. He just gets really delirious from this heat, and he's faint. And verse 8 tells us, death with Death wish Jonah here says, God, let me die. It's better for me to die than live. I've lost my plant. I want us to think here about what our joy and sorrow is found in. A person whose joy and sorrow is found in the plants in life is a person who doesn't love the nation. I think even here God appoints this plant situation in Jonah's life to show him the basis of his joy. It's, it's based on these, these physical things. You and I live in a culture, a North American culture, that, that loves pleasure and loves comfort. And many of the decisions we make are, are based on whether or not they'll bring us more comfort or less comfort. I was reading in the New York Times an interesting article about the, uh, the nature of, of the amount of materials amount of material possessions we, we spend on comfort. We spend about $2,000 a year just having access to like the internet and cable television and plus all the amount of money we spend on, on devices to use that access. It's amazing how much of our finances are directed toward entertainment, toward comfort, toward pleasure. We live in a culture where even the, the poor among us have access to great amounts of comfort. Uh, Ken McIntyre wrote an article entitled, Modern Poverty Includes AC and an Xbox. And according to the Census Bureau last year, one-seventh of our population were considered impoverished, but most of those who are, are considered poor, but most of those uh, not only can meet the essential needs of life, like food and medical care, but live in a home that's in good repair, uh, are equipped with air conditioning, clothes, washer, dryer, cable, satellite TV service, two TVs, a DVD player, and a video game system. You know? And those are the poor people. And I say that not to attack the poor people, but to call us all to account here, right? If those are the poor among us, how much more well-off are we and how willing are we to turn away from those creature comforts in life? Just think about your past week. Just think about what took place in your life this past week. What was the, the best day of your week, and, and what was the worst day? And what caused it to be the worst day? What is it that brought you sorrow this week? What is it that brought you joy? I tell you, you know, car problems this past week brought me sorrow. I want my cars to all be in working order and nothing to be wrong with them. Something bad takes place. What do I feel? Sorrow. Things that bring me joy. I got an evening off or I was able to, to sleep in late. You know, physical comforts. When the base, and I'm not saying it's wrong to be comfortable, but I'm saying when I find my, when the basis of my, for my joy is my comfort or the basis for my sorrow is discomfort, it doesn't reveal a heart that loves the nations. It doesn't reveal a heart that loves God. The final sign here that I don't love the nations we see is that I prioritize 
plants over people. God's words to Jonah are very strong, beginning in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? You know, in verse 4, he said, look, do you do well to be angry about this lack of, of mercy you have? Do you do well here to be angry about a plant? And, and Jonah doubles down again. He says, look, I do well to be angry, angry enough to what? Die. The Lord said, look, you pity the plant. You have a compassion for a plant. And what did you do? You didn't labor for it. You didn't make it grow. It came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. It has no soul. It has no, no life to it beyond just a 24-hour period. And, and this is what you're basing your, your joy or your sorrow on. You have sorrow for it. But then he says, by extension, verse 11, it should not I pity Nineveh that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left. In other words, they're completely without a knowledge of me and morality and what's right to do and what's wrong to do. It's very interesting, too, to note that the story ends without telling us what Jonah's response is. And I believe that's intentional so that you and I can think about what our response will be as we consider whether or not we love plants or people. God's telling Jonah, look, the things that elicit an emotional response from you are not the same things that elicit an emotional response from me. You're concerned about plants and I'm concerned about people. What are the plants in your life? What are those things that cause you joy or sorrow? Is it a World Series game? Is it your job? Is it the, the stock market? Is it, is it the things that cause your heart to ache? Is it the car problems or, or the, the different uh, physical circumstances in your life? And if that's the case, what does it reveal about you? As you think about, look, I don't love the nations. I, I love the plants. As you think about that reality, what does that say about the condition of your heart? I believe it says that you don't love God as you ought. We don't love God as we ought. I want to close by just reading some statistics to you from a ministry called Eternal Perspectives Ministry. Think about the things that brought you joy or sorrow this last week, and then test your heart's reaction to these, these facts. You live in a world where the proportion of the world's population that lives in hunger is declining, but the, due to population increases, the total number of people who are hungry in the world is higher today than ever before in history. 13,600 children will die today, will die today because of a combination of of malnutrition and disease. One-third of the children in developing countries are going to be permanently, either mentally or physically handicapped because of their lack of access to adequate health care. There are 47 million people in the world in which you live who are displaced refugees. There are 100 million children in the world today who live in the streets by the year 2020, there should be almost a billion. The United Nations estimates that 
one million children enter the trade of child prostitution each year. Now, consider this as well. As you think about the state of the world in which you live, 85% of the world's poorest countries lie within the unevangelized world. There are 1,700 unreached people groups. They don't have a nationally-led, viable, reproducing church. 3.1 billion people, 95% of unreached people groups, are located in the area of the world we call that 1040 window. Of those who live in the 1040 window, two-thirds of them, two billion people, have never heard of Jesus Christ, at least in the sense of the salvation that he offers. 85% of the poorest people live in this 1040 window. 95%, though, listen to this, 95% of missions, money, and resources in the Western world go to areas of the world where there is already an established or emerging church. And 5% goes to areas where there is no established churches. 90% of full-time Christian workers in the world live in countries that constitute 10% of the world's population. How does that make you feel? What's your emotional response as you think about the overwhelming physical and spiritual needs of the world in which you live? You live, you live in a world where people are literally and spiritually starving to death. And you're worried about plants. Do you love God? Do you love God? If you love God, you're going to love the nations. And those things that cause you joy and sorrow are going to change. And your joy and sorrow is going to be more and more reflective of what God causes God joy and sorrow. And if you love the nations, a good question to ask ourselves as we finish a mission's emphasis this week is what are we going to do about it? What is God calling you to do as you think about the reality that you've been focused on plants instead of worried about people? I believe God is calling some of you perhaps to pursue missions with a greater fervor. Our church is in need of men and women who will rise up and say, look, I want to, I want to reach the nations. Our church is in need of men and women who will rise up and say, look, I want to support those who are going to reach the nations. And our church is in need, frankly, of men and women who will rise up and say, look, I want to call our church to a greater passion for Jesus Christ and proclaim the good news. When I don't love the nations, it reveals that I don't love Christ. May we be a church that loves Jesus Christ and desires to see the good news of Jesus Christ proclaimed to all people, and may that be one of the basis upon which we experience joy and sorrow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this world that you love. We thank you for your character attributes that reveal a God that is compassionate and loving and allows us to have a relationship with him. Give us the grace to proclaim the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ, with greater fervor and passion. We pray this in his name. Amen.